What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast, TMT Time, a production of the Technology, Media, and Telecommunications Group here at Arnold and Porter. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Glad to be back with you again. I'm delighted to be welcoming into the podcast today a partner of mine in our DC office, a policy guru, Greg Lauer. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. Excited to be here. I am excited to talk about something that may not sound exciting, but you're going to tell our listeners why it's exciting, why it's sexy, why they should care. And of course, I'm talking about the Secure and Trusted Communications Network Act of 2019. Wow, I could barely get that out. All right, Greg, tell me what that is about, why we should listen. First of all, we're not going to refer to it by that very lengthy name anymore during this pod. Let's promise each other that, Evan. Can we say, I'm not going to call this bill the Secure Trust Communications Network Act. What, Repeat uh, after me. I just fell Wait, what did you say? I just fell asleep. What, all right. What are we going to call it? We're going to call it the Secure Network Act. All right. Secure Network Act. Why should I care about the Secure Network Act? First and foremost, this legislation responds to the policymaking environment in D.C., responsive to China's industrial policy and security actions with respect to technology. They have been exporting that, to the is world. Is that a euphemism of for spying? I won't use that word, but you certainly can. Um, there are security risks that have been associated and identified throughout the United States government and really throughout the rest of the global community with respect to some technologies manufactured in China that affect core network properties in the both the broadband and the wireless arena. And so there is now a global effort underway to ensure that our communications networks internationally um, are trusted and secure. And this legislation is a byproduct of that. And what we'll talk about today is a little bit about peeling back the onion on why Congress passed this bill, why it's important, some of the risks that I think that our listeners might wanna be thinking about but also to talk about potential opportunities that are out there for those that may be considering advocacy plans, regulatory strategy, and their approach to the industry writ large in their business plans. So you know about this, Gregor, because you are, is it okay if I call you a lobbyist? Or I is... proudly wear the scarlet L. You may call me a lobbyist, but okay. you also can call me a lawyer, whatever you want. Okay, I'm, I'm going to call you a lobbyist or maybe a lobbyist lawyer. So as a lobbyist lawyer, why are you in tuned with the Secured Network Act? Why are you aware of how it passed? What's your role in helping clients navigate some of these items that you just mentioned? My role here as an advisor to clients is to help them understand, like, like many other laws and regulations that are, in fact, that are on the books today or that may be coming down the pike tomorrow, what is the impact to your business? How can we potentially improve this so that your business environment is better? And in general, how can we improve the public policy environment? And out of that, during the, the lead up to Congress passing this bill and the president signing it in March of 2020, there was about a one-year process, perhaps even longer than that, where Congress started to think about what it could do to ensure supply chain integrity in the communications network space. And our client base, and, and frankly, uh, the rest of the, the regulated community 
in general has been watching this uh, situation evolve for a long time. And now that the bill is on the books and the FCC is starting to, to regulate it and to implement the law, we have to answer questions often. And I think that our listeners probably would enjoy some of that perspective as well. All right. So take us through how the bill gets passed. And before I even go there, actually, we're talking about like actual hardware, right? Devices like communication devices. So switches and the things that are on the telephone poles, commercial level, right? Certainly what this is designed to attack the SNA is to, to deal with communications equipment. What we're not talking about is handsets and consumer devices. What we are talking about are equipment and services that address the network core and more broadly are in the advanced communications network environment. Okay, so like the, there, there's towers in my neighborhood that are probably doing terrible things to my brain for the new 5G. Um, are we is that what we're talking about, the, that type of equipment? Or network equipment, yes. Got it. Okay. All right. So, all right, let's go, let's go for it. So the bill gets signed, passed 2019, implemented in 2020. Talk to, to us about how the FTC or the FCC, sorry, goes through and works on an implementation. How does it roll out? How does it affect the public slash these companies that are, are now um, under the auspices of this regulation? One of the interesting things about the way and the timeline of, for the legislation passing and then the FCC's efforts to implement it through the regulatory process is that the law in, in many ways aligns with an existing regulatory process that has been on the, the underway at the commission for a couple of years as the FCC started to use its independent existing statutory authority to address security risks presented by products like Huawei and ZTE and the like. Um, and other questions that had arisen regarding China Mobile and their services. So that regulatory process con converged upon the passage of this law in March 2020. And since that time, the FCC has been working to kind of align their regulatory process in a way that makes sense. So who actually goes out and enforces this? Does the FTC have enforcement? Like, how does it go through and implement the, the law with the actual hardware itself? It's a good question. Again, the, the statute Dude, I'm, does, I'm full of good questions. Don't worry the, about it. I got, the all, statute, I got <laughs> The statute does provide a specific enforcement authority for the FCC to ensure that the regulated community is taking care of their obligations and that if problems emerge, the FCC can address them. And I think even if the statute didn't necessarily address those issues um, independently, I think the FCC probably would have bolted on their existing regulatory authority for enforcement more broadly within their 19 Communications Act of 1934 authority. All right. So sorry to interrupt you. Keep going, telling us how this is going to play out and affect people or companies here as we move forward in 2021. Certainly. Maybe the best thing to do is to take a step back and to just tick through a couple of key features of the law itself. And then we can kind of move on from there to talk about how the FCC is regulating and implementing it. Perfect. I like to, first of all, the short form for the way that people often refer to SNA is to call it the rip and replace bill. 
And the reason that it is referred to in that way. I'm glad you went there because during my quote unquote research for this podcast, Greg, everybody talks about rip it out, the rip it out act, rip and replace. I don't know what the heck that means. So I'm glad you're going to tell us. I will do that. Congress wanted to in both set a policy framework in place so that the agents, federal agencies could make determinations about which equipment and services in the communications ecosystem pose unacceptable national security risks. And then the FCC's responsibilities are to effectively recognize those determinations and put them on a list, a naughty list, if you will. So that's what section two of the bill does. It requires the agency to list entities that are named and services that are named by other agencies, like the Department of Commerce, like the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, the intelligence community, interagency bodies like Team Telecom, CFIUS, anything with a national security nexus. Those interagency or agency entities make the determinations and the FCC then in an administrative capacity puts them on a list. That's section two. Section three of the law requires the, the, um, the agency to then, first, what they have a regulatory process, and then section three provides that there's a prohibition on the use of federal funds to acquire or maintain equipment and services that are listed on section two of the bill. So practically, what does that mean? If you're an eligible telecommunications carrier or another entity that is making use of an FCC subsidy program, you cannot use universal service funds or other pro subsidy programs that the FCC administers to acquire or maintain equipment and services listed under Section 2. You effectively, as the FCC has interpreted the law, have to rip that equipment out of your network and replace it with trusted equipment. That is the replacement element of the rip and replace. I like law. the ripping more than the replacing. So if you, if you get on this list, is it because your router or your tower or your network interchange is like what vulnerable for spying or has been shown to be used for spying or what, like, what are we talking about here? Like, what does that, what does that mean? It's not designed to address overall communication network architecture. So it isn't to say that a tower is not secure. It's really designed to address very specific equipment or certain entities that manufacture equipment so that communications network operators understand, okay, company X has manufactured product Y and Department of Commerce, for example, has determined that that product presents an unacceptable national security risk to the United States. Section two of the, the SNA requires the FCC to put that equipment and product on the naughty list. And then network operators can't acquire that product anymore and they can't use uh, USF funds or other subsidies to maintain it. Very simply, and then they have the, the FCC's regulations say that network operators have to, if, as long as you are taking those federal dollars and those subsidies, you have to rip it out of your network and replace it with trusted equipment. Now, how often, because what this makes me think of is how often is there actually stuff that's been deployed that is out 
that is being needed to be ripped out? Like, are we, are we talking about a couple particular companies or just companies that get onto this naughty list? Like it's a chipset from a company. Is it really out there? Is this because we're worried that things have infiltrated our systems and we need to get rid of it? And we're sort of behind the eight ball and we're trying to catch up, or is this a prophylactic forward looking? We're not going to let those things get into our network type regulation. It is both. It's both forward looking and retroactive. As with other countries that are looking at these issues and trying to figure out how they can secure their network for the future, they've also recognized that over time, there has been a proliferation of technology produced, for example, by Huawei. And that technology is relatively inexpensive. And because it's inexpensive, it has landed in US networks as it has in other countries. That is known. It's something that's been building in the fact pattern and the agencies here in the United States have covered this at nauseum and in Congress. There's been countless hearings, countless legislative products to address it. And finally, there's a kind of a mechanism to try to tie it all together. That's why the bill was passed, because there was an understanding that communications uh, providers in the United States, some, not all, have acquired this technology over time. It's in the network. It needs to be ripped and it needs to be replaced. That's step one. Step two, for entities that are not yet on the list, but could be on the list, that's the forward-looking element of the bill. Well, you know, this could, makes me think of this colonial pipeline hack and the gas shortage on the East Coast out where you live, which may or may not be related to panic buying. But regardless, someone should put this in place to rip out the stuff that got hacked by Darkseid, uh, not the DC villain, but Darkseid, the hacker company, which is apparently shutting down now. But uh, that's what I want to get ripped out. I don't want the, the uh, pipeline system getting hacked. This sounds like a cool, good law to me and, and like we need it in all industries given what's going on in the world. Well, that's certainly something that could be addressed in other contexts uh, and by other agencies if Congress decided that that was uh, an appropriate policy. But at least with respect to the communications network environment, there's a, there's a fact pattern that was relied upon for years, frankly, to get to where we are and an understanding that it was a unique problem with a fairly narrow uh, solution. And that was the, the ultimate goal here was to address something, to craft something that could be responsive to the problem. So Evan, I think that if, if, uh, if you petition your members of Congress and your senators in, in Colorado, they might have an interest in that. <laughs> I'm going to start a letter writing campaign. All right. What else do we need to know about the Secured Network Act or the SNA? I like the acronym better. I thought you would. Uh, I think what's, to me, what I like, what I want people to understand is number one, the bill, the, the law passed in March, 2020. It did take the FCC a little bit of time to move through the regulatory process to start to implement it. And there were some key questions that the FCC has already answered. And we can talk about what those are because I think that they're important for folks to understand and get clarity around. Uh, the second thing for folks to understand is that there still is uh, an existing regulatory process that remains open. Uh, another, a, third notice, a third notice of proposed rulemaking was published in March in a, to address some changes that were made to the law uh, by the appropriations bill that Congress passed in December, which made a couple of tweaks, but they were very important tweaks to what passed from March 2020. 
All right. So tell us the first point that you just made. What are the takeaways that folks need to know? What are the things that have already been answered? And then you can tell us about a couple of things that may be answered that the uh, notice of rulemaking may get to. I thought that the FCC's second important order was conclusive in a few ways that are important. And the first is this. I thought the statute was fairly clear in this regard when I read it independently, but the FCC did take comment on this and made clear that they do not have independent authority to reach conclusions that are beyond what other agencies conclude. Effectively, they have an administrative responsibility to recognize the determinations made by the Department of Commerce, the Department of Defense, and other agencies that are, that are uh, identified under Section 2. That's pretty important because the FCC generally hasn't, uh, when they get regulatory authority to, to make decisions, they have an open process. There's notice and comment according to the APA procedures. That is not going to happen here. What the FCC made clear is they'll recognize determinations by other agencies. They'll put a public notice out, but they will not, that public notice will not include the opportunity for comment. It's purely administrative in nature. Does that make sense? It's kind of my first point that I think yeah, folks need I, to understand. Absolutely. The, the second point that I thought was interesting, uh, and this kind of aligns with the, the FCC's previous regulatory um, proceeding that was happening in parallel towards congressional consideration of SNA, was that the statute itself, and I think I referred to this earlier in the pod, the statute itself doesn't require entities to rip and replace anything. That doesn't exist in the law itself. It, you could read in a, an encouragement, certainly, for entities, particularly those that are receiving universal service funds, to do the rip before they do the replace or to join to effectively make use of the rip and replace reimbursement fund under Section 4. But this, the law itself didn't say that. At the FCC, more or less bolted on their, their existing statutory regulatory authority through Section 254, I believe, and maybe uh, one other area of the Communications Act to determine that that is what they think needs to happen. So effectively, the FCC has said, as a result of their understanding of the law and congressional intent and existing law through the Communications Act, entities that are receiving USF funds and other subsidy funds that they're responsible for that do have this that do have equipment in their networks that identify by Section 2, they have the responsibility to rip it out and they should use Section 4 to replace it. All right. So now let's move to the proposed rulemaking going forward. What do you think still needs to be addressed and or what is likely to happen as a result of the latest request for a comment by the FCC? Without pontificating necessarily on where the FCC is going to go, uh, the, well, that, that word's too big for this podcast, Greg. I don't even know what that means. If you're going to theorize, think about, is that what you're trying to say? I don't really think, think too hard about those kinds of things, Evan, at the end of the day. I, I, will, I will tell you this. The, the major issues that the FCC is wrestling with at this point have to do with the way that the reimbursement program is going to be run in light of the changes that Congress made to the SNA in December. And maybe that's important to perhaps take a step back and talk about because we haven't necessarily discussed much about the reimbursement plan, but Congress did make some changes in the appropriations bill at the end of the year to expand the reimbursement program in a couple of different ways. 
in addition yeah, to actually appropriating the money for it. I was going to say, I read something that the, the um, cost was going to be like close to $2 billion for the ripping. So who, who's paying for that? How are those companies that spent money putting that in? They're obviously going to have to spend money replacing. Where's the, where's the, where's the money coming from? Am I paying that? And it, you know, where, how is it going to happen? So the, the answer to that is twofold. Congress passed the law, the original law for SNA in 2020 March, without actually appropriating money to stand up the rip and replace program at the FCC. The, the unstated understanding there was that Congress is going to add the money later. Uh, certainly, you could not request, require entities to rip out uh, equipment from their network that was at one point legal to have in there and still is in some cases without actually standing up a fund to replace them. Because the whole idea with the, with the bill, notwithstanding the forward, forward leaning nature of some elements of it was to incent communications providers to rip out untrusted equipment from their networks. So without actually having the money in the bill, in the law that passed to appropriate that funds, the first thing that the FCC needed to do in the regulatory uh, pr process was to estimate effectively how much money was going to be necessary to stand that program up. And the FCC ultimately concluded that it was going to be just shy of $2 billion. That came out in, this, in the fall, I believe, of two, 2020. And that kind of provided the key appropriators and, and those on the authorizing committees the evidence case that they needed to actually go out and appropriate the money to the FCC to stand that fund up. And because of the nature of the, of the legislative process at the end of the presidential term and all, all of the things that were changing, it took a long time for Congress to get around to doing that. But ultimately in December, that was the result. The $2 billion necessary to stand up the program was appropriated in the omnibus appropriations bill. So that was an important change. I like how you use the word appropriated. I prefer the term taxed or taken from others. But, you know, we just reach back into the coffers and we're like, we need $2 billion more billion to uh, rip and replace, and we're going to find it somewhere, right? Well, $2 billion may sound like a lot of money until you start thinking about multi-trillion dollar packages that are now pending in Congress. Uh, uh, Touche. Fair point. All right. We are close to running out of time, Greg. And as much as I want to keep talking about the secure... Network Communications Act or the Secure Network Act or the SNA, we don't have any more time. So now I have some questions for you, which is first one, if you could rip out any body part and replace it with a better version, which would it be? Hmm. I got to go with my feet. My feet which I think are fine, by the way. They served me well over the last 43 years. My wife has identified these as a trouble spot for me, Ed. She's All called right. them troll feet before. <laughs> you know, she's it. nasty. She's nasty about that kind of stuff. I will say I'm very appreciative of the fact that you're keeping this podcast clean and G-rated for all of our listeners. So I'll make that point. I appreciate it's, that. It's a family pod. It is. It's, it totally is. Otherwise, I'm going to put it on LinkedIn. It's going to go bananas. Exactly. Yes. I love it. All right. What's the last book you read? Ooh, I have just, that's a great question. And there's a couple answers. There's a 
bunch of books that I've been reading to my kids. Uh, so I'm going to leave those out. But the book series that I just finished was the Hyperion Cantos, which is a four series, a book, book series of four books uh, by Dan Simmons. They're absolute masterpieces for science fiction. So if you like to nerd out to sci-fi, fantasy, uh, those are indispensable, incredible fiction stories. I love it. Actually, this is a back-to-back podcast. We're nerding out here on science fiction. I like science fiction books. The last book I read was book nine of the Nancy Drew Diaries, because that's what my daughter and I are reading. Highly recommend it. You can get them at your local Costco. It's a great series, obviously under the, the pseudo pen name, Carolyn Keene. All right, last movie you watched. Last movie I watched in full was probably with my kids two week, two or three weeks ago. We watched Endgame, oh, which is oh. remains absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I like that. That's good. All right, final question. Now that the CDC has ordained us allowed to go outside and do things without a mask, what are you most looking forward to doing? So the first thing that just came to my mind was baseball. I miss baseball games very, very much. There's nothing better in, in a, than a cold beer and a hot day doing nothing and watching baseball. Orioles or Nationals? Uh, Nationals, even though I'm an old school American League guy, I got to give a shout out to my Cleveland Indians uh, going back to my Ohio, my, my Ohio roots. Uh, I do like to watch the Nationals. I've never really been a big fan of Baltimore. I like a, I like the old school Orioles hat. I really got to say, Earl Weaver oh, style, Jim Palmer. Fair point. I will tell you that Camden Yards remains a much better place to watch a game. That the product leaves a little bit to be desired on the field. All right. Well, when I'm I'm allowed to travel again and we can actually see each other in person, we'll have to catch a ball game together. Greg, thank you so much for your time joining us in the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. This is a unique topic, and I'm glad we were able to clue our listeners in about the rip and replace. So thanks very much, Greg. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate it.